If you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, we will finish up our time in 1 John this morning, move on to 2 John next week. First John chapter 5. Last week we talked about testimony and uh, the, the, those that testify to Christ. And this week we are going to talk about assurance and what we know from God's Word. So looking at verse 13, starting at verse 13, the apostle writes, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I write these things to you who believe. In the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, the allies were mopping up operations on the island of Sicily. The Axis forces have been defeated, and the planners of the allies were turning their thoughts towards the mainland of Italy. As many of you know, I, I like to read, and in the evenings, lots of times I will read a biography. It may be ministry-related, or it may not. And right now, I'm reading a biography of a man named General Jim Gavin, who was a commander in the 82nd Airborne. And what I read is that unlike the Germans on Sicily, the Italians didn't put up much of a fight. The biographer says that they would fire a few shots and then usually wave the white flag of surrender. And soon... The American and British soldiers would storm the beaches of Salerno on the mainland. And on the mainland of Italy, the Italians at this time had deposed Mussolini, who was the dictator at the time. And they had reached out to the Allies to talk about surrender, to talk about peace without the Germans knowing. It was one of the strangest operations that never happened of World War II, and it was called Giant II. This plan that was in the process, um, uh, in the planning process, along with the invasion of Salerno, was for the 82nd Airborne to jump into Rome, and with aid of the Italian army, they were going to secure the city 
and the new leader of Italy was going to announce that Italy was out of the war. American President FDR thought it was a great idea. The Prime Minister of England, Winston Churchill, loved it. Eisenhower was all behind it, but there was one guy that did not have the assurance he needed, and his name was General Ridgway, the commanding officer of the 82nd Airborne. He did not have the assurance that this would go as planned, and so he devised this mission that's something like out of a James Bond movie. He sent a couple of his men, a General Taylor and an intelligence officer, on this allied boat, and they, they, they zoom out into the Mediterranean Ocean and link up with an Italian warship. And the two men in uniform, because they didn't want to be shot as spies, jumped onto this Italian boat and were smuggled into Italy. They doused them with salt water. The story was going to be that if they were caught by the Germans, they were going to say they had picked them up out of a downed plane out of the operation at Sicily. And they smuggled them into Rome. The, the two American soldiers were getting more and more nervous because the closer they got to Rome, the more Germans they saw through a little slit of the truck they were being smuggled in. And what they found when they got to Rome is that it was a good thing that Ridgeway didn't have assurance that he did. Because the new president or, or leader of Italy was not on board with this plan. None of the leaders were. And in fact, the Germans didn't have assurance in the Italians, so they had cut their fuel rations and cut their ammo rations, so they probably could not have even supported the 82nd. And the mission was scrapped all together. All because one man didn't have assurance in the mission, and he didn't have assurance in the Italians. Ironically enough, they were supposed to report back to the Allies on Italian radio equipment, but they didn't have assurance in that, so they brought their own radio equipment. Now, I'll tell you all that just to highlight the importance of assurance. Thinking about the church, one historian has written that he does not have assurance in what the church is going to face in the third millennium of its existence. He doesn't have assurance in what's going to happen. Like the flaky Italian army, liberal theology and a secular worldview infects the Western church. People don't proclaim truth, and they do not love the scriptures. The wife of a prominent liberal pastor recently said, I grew up thinking that we had the Bible figured out, that we knew what it means, but now I have no idea what most of it means. It's a pastor's wife. Some in the church have capitulated to this corrupt theology for fear for a fight, and some have defected from serving the Lord into politics, thinking that is the answer. Many just no longer care. Assurance in God's word, assurance in God, a trust is sometimes hard to find. But friends, this morning I want to say that despite the flaky, despite the scared, and despite the indifferent, We have assurance in our God. God's promises will be fulfilled. They never fail. And as I have labored throughout the past weeks uh, to make clear, we do not want to give false assurance to anyone. These promises only apply to those who are truly in Christ. But what we see is that these promises are for the genuinely saved. They are those who trust in Christ. Those are They are for those of us who believe. And John writes to those who believe that they may have assurance, and he says three things at least. He says we know we have a relationship with the Father. We know we have overcome the world, and we know we have him who is true, 
Jesus Christ. Now, John is writing in the context of a church that has just had false teachers leave. And he is writing to reassure them of the basics of the faith, to cling to sound doctrine, that they should love the church and pursue holiness. All true Christians have these attributes at some level. True Christians are those who are called out of darkness and into the light. And they love truth. They love God's people. And they pursue a holy life. The first thing we see in our text today is that we know as Christians we have a relationship with the Father. And our relationship with the Father means eternal life. Look with me at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. John's writing to the church that they will be assured that they have eternal life, that they will be sure that they will spend eternity with God in heaven, to the true Christians, that they will know. And he gives these three tests, the three tests we just mentioned. Do you love truth? Do you love the church? Do you pursue holiness? He doesn't want any confusion. He doesn't want to give false assurance to anyone. And he says that these three things are an indicator that you have received this new life, and they are an indicator that you have assurance. He also says our relationship with the Father means he hears our prayers. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now, I don't know, I haven't researched if any prosperity gospel people take this out of context to say that, you know, that you're going to get what you ask for. But I think if you read it and what he's saying, we have to pray in accordance with God's will. Then he hears you. We must remember to pray that his will be done because he has ordained history. He is sovereign over the universe. Still, he is our good father, and we bring our needs to him as we have done this morning, as we do every Sunday. Our prayers will be answered in accordance with his will, not our fallen will. God is not our genie waiting on our wildest desires. He is not holding back until we sow a seed or meet some specific criteria, as the televangelist will tell us. He does not wake up the more people you get on the prayer chain. He's not looking for a certain number of signers on the petition before he will move. But God loves his children and will hear our prayers and answer them in accordance with his will. Unanswered prayers are not a sign that God does not care about you. Because God is working all things for his glory and for our good. We ask having assurance that he knows best. I mean, even at some level, Garth Brooks got this, right? Like, I thank God for unanswered prayers. If, if men, if our high school crush or middle school crush, we'd have prayed for her and that would have been the woman God gave us, most of us would not have our wonderful wives today. Garth Brooks understood this at some level. Christ has instructed us to pray to the Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
So we can trust that whatever happens, God is in control, and his will is right, his will is best, and he answers our prayers in accordance with it. We can have assurance in our relationship with the Father. But second, we know we have assurance because we have overcome the world. And overcoming the world means life, not death. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for it. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, one of the trickier passages of this book, second only to the one we read last week. What does John mean when he talks about a sin that leads to death? Is there this, this one sin out there that if you do this one sin, there's no coming back? Well, there's a lot of detail you could go into, but I think one of the easiest ways to think about it is first, there are two sins involved here. Obviously, there's a sin that does not lead to death, and there's a sin that does. And Colin Cruz, the commentator, states that the sin that does not lead to death is the sin of a believer. The sin that does lead to death is the sin of the unbeliever. Andreas Kostenberger says that sin that leads to death is the deliberate rejection of the truth. In other words, the sin that leads to death is akin to blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is the continual rejection of Jesus Christ, a deliberate rejection of the biblical Christ will lead to death. John Stott says, for those who reject the Son, they forfeit life. Their sin leads to death. But not so for Christians. Not so for those of us who are in Christ. Romans 8 shows us that Christians have been given life through Christ and are assured of our freedom from sin and death. Romans 8.1 says there is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have nothing to fear if we have been set free through Christ. We have overcome the world through Christ, and that means eternal life. That means eternal security. Overcoming the world through Christ means life. And overcoming the world through Christ means that we are a new creation. Look with me at verse 18. <clears throat> we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. So John here is not advocating sinless perfection. But what he is saying is that no one who is in union with Jesus Christ will continue to willfully sin. If you are truly saved, you cannot continue to willfully rebel against a holy God. Peter writes that Christians are obedient children, not conformed to their former passions, but holy in conduct. 1 Peter 1.14 Paul gives us the same statement in Romans 6 when he says, how can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? He claims our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved 
to sin. For one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Romans 6, 5 through 7. Paul says that either you are a slave to sin or you are a slave to Christ. You cannot be both. You cannot be both. There is no neutral position. Either you are a slave to rebellion and committing acts against a holy God, or you are a slave to Christ and you are pursuing righteousness, albeit imperfectly. You are not perfect, but when you do sin, you repent from that sin and you turn from that sin and you turn back to Christ. In the ancient world, people would sell themselves into slavery to get out of debt. And the slave would be obedient to the master. If he was not, it would not go well for him. In Romans, Paul argues that if one consistently yields him up to sin, he is enslaved to sin. Jesus says the same thing in John 8.34 when he says, Every person who is committing sin is a slave to sin. Friend, hear me. You cannot be a slave to sin and a slave to Christ. One of the strangest things I hear is American Christians argue the opposite. Argue the opposite. Yeah, man, I mean, yeah, you watch porn and I get drunk and you beat your wife and it's all okay because we have Jesus. Friends, if that is your view, be disavowed from it today. Repent of it today. Repent of this cheap grace view. Now hear me, a dead man can do nothing. You may not save yourselves. You cannot save yourselves. But at the same time, if you have surrendered to sin and you embrace that lifestyle, you cannot be a slave of Jesus Christ. John Calvin sums it up far better than I can when he says, quote, We do not justify man before God by his works. We hold that all who are born of God are born again and made a new creation, so that they pass from the realm of sin to the kingdom of righteousness. By such testimonies, they make their calling certain, and like trees, they are judged by their fruit. End quote. In other words, the reformer says, you cannot save yourself, but if your life is marked by disobedience, it proves you never have been saved. And the Bible says the same thing. Paul says either you're a slave to sin, which means death, or you're a slave to Christ, which means life and righteousness. John says no one born of God keeps in a life marked by sin because overcoming the world means you are a new creation. And overcoming the world means that we are from God. Look with me at verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Ephesians 2 says that we are born dead in sin. As our small group talked about this week, what can a dead man do? Nothing. You lie there, dead. But God. But God made us alive with Christ. God gifted us redemption as a gift. God saved you by his great mercy. And not just saved you to sit and do the same old thing, but saved you for the good works he has prepared, as Ephesians 2 tells us. God is conforming you by his Spirit into the image of Christ. And those who are from God have overcome this world, but the world is still under the sway of the devil, but not the same. Not so for you, Christian, because you have overcome it, not by your own strength, 
but by Christ. Your changed life shows that you are from God, and your changed life shows that you are in union with Christ, and that gives us assurance. Third, we know we have him who is true, Jesus Christ. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Friends, Jesus came to give us understanding. Jesus came that we might know him who is true. Jesus came to save us from ourselves, from our sin, and we are who are in him who is true, are Christians. We are in union with Jesus Christ. And John says plainly, Jesus is the true God. Jesus is the eternal life. One of the lingering stenches of liberal theology is that a mere human Jesus with mere human sayings. The church acts, and I talk about the church, I talk about the Western church, as though Jesus was just a good man. He is just a mere moral example for us to follow. We need to ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? Rather than, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? And how are we to live in light of it? How are we to obey the commands? They say we need to ignore the commands of Scripture and follow a simple cultural love ethic. But Al Mohler says one of the greatest attractions of heresy is to have a Jesus more like us. This Jesus might be culturally acceptable, but he is certainly not the Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, my friends, was no mere good man. He is not merely an example for us to follow. But Jesus is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man, and he has never changed. And we have assurance in that, that there is no substitute for him. There is no substitute for Christ. John says, keep yourself from idols. Don't substitute something else in for Christ. John says, guard yourself against idols in your life. There is no alternative for the one true and living God. You may not make your own Jesus You may not twist the scriptures into what you would have them to fit your agenda, whether it be a theology of God or practice. You must not make an idol for yourself. Think back to the nation of Israel. God has just mercifully and graciously brought them out of bondage. They've seen all of these miracles. They've seen the angel of death come through and take the firstborn, but pass them over. They were running from Egypt, and they saw God part the Red Sea. God has fed them, and he takes them to Mount Sinai, and he says, all right, I've mounted you up on wings of eagles and brought you from bondage. And he makes a covenant with them, and they say, we want this covenant. We want to be your people. Then what happens? Well, Moses goes up on the mountain, and he's gone a really long time. And they come to Aaron, and they want a God, and so what does Aaron do? He gathers all the gold up, and he, he makes this calf. And they start worshiping the calf. But what's interesting in that story is 
What does Aaron say when he lays it before them? He says, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. This is Yahweh. God had brought them out of Egypt. And the holy name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh, but it wasn't the calf. Friends, it is important that we have the right God, that we follow who he says he is from his word, rather than resting assured in the promises of God that he had just made with them, rather than remembering the wonderful freeing salvation of the true God, they chose to make a God for themselves. Friends, what calves are you resting in this morning? What are you trusting in rather than God? Rest assured that those in Christ are in him who is true. He is true. God's promises will be fulfilled. God's promises will never fail. John writes to those who believe that they may have assurance. We know that we have a relationship with the Father. We know that we have overcome the world. And we know that we have him who is true, Jesus Christ. And this morning, in light of this text, I want to lay before you four daily habits that will help you with assurance. Four daily habits. First, pray with assurance. Pray to God with assurance. John states that if we pray anything in accordance with his will, he hears us. So we need to pray with the will of God. We pray confidently according to the name of Christ. And you say, well, how do I know his will? Know his word. Know the scriptures. Take up the scriptures and read. Friends, those of you that know me know that I didn't grow up in a Christian household, so it's not as though my daddy was a preacher and I've just kind of fallen in this track and and so, yeah, I believe this is true because I grew up with it. Becoming a Christian at 30, I have lived the other life, the life of untruth. And I can confidently say and testify to you this morning that his word is truth. So know the truth. Know God's word. Pray according to his word. Do you want to ensure you're praying with his purposes? Then pray with that which we know is sure, sure, is inerrant and true. You say, but I don't know, pastor, of a chapter and a verse that talks about me having a decked out fishing boat and a totally remodeled house and a husband with uh, advanced degrees and a trophy wife. Yeah, you're right. It's not there. But what God does say is that he feeds the birds and he clothes the fields and he cares for you. You may not have a fishing boat you want, but if you're in Christ, you know his love is sure and that he provides what you need according to his word. Pray God's word back to him. John Stott has written that after you're reading the Bible in the morning, don't change the subject. Just go straight into prayer. Pray back what you have just read to God. One of my friends from seminary has a wonderful practice that I heartily commend to you. Now, we both work for the seminary. I write stuff with my pen. He's a computer guy. Uh, My desk had sticky notes all over the place. Um, His was super clean. But what he would do every morning is he would read his scripture, and then he would pull out his laptop, and he would write an Acts prayer from the scripture he just read. So you know what an Acts prayer is? Adoration. You start with adoration, who God is, and you, you pray that. You have confession. You confess any sins uh, and shortcomings. You have thanksgiving, the T. Uh, you pray that, and in supplication, you pray your needs to him. And he would write a prayer 
according to the scripture he just read. Now imagine you do that for a few days, months, years, decades. Imagine how scriptural your prayers would become. So we pray to God with assurance. Second, read God's word with assurance. How do you read your Bible, friends? Do you read it as an arduous chore, like, oh, ho-hum, pastor said, I've got to read my Bible, so I guess I'll read it. Or do you go to it knowing that within it are the words of life? The words of life. Do you believe this Bible that you have on your lap this morning or don't have on your lap? Do you believe it? Do you know that it is true? Do you verbally affirm the scriptures but practically deny them by your actions? I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's another issue of the church is to say, yeah, the Bible is inerrant, the Bible is sufficient, and then live according to the wisdom of the world. It's not enough just to say you believe the Bible, but showing that we are assured it is true is to apply it to our lives, is to live and to heed its instruction. Well, the world says I should think this way of money, and the Bible says this, which one do we do? Bible wins, if you're a Christian. The world says I should think this way about this certain sin, but the Bible says this, which one wins? If you're a Christian, the answer's clear. Well, the Bible says I should act this way when someone sins against me, and the world says this, which one wins? Friends, it's not enough to verbally affirm, but you must heed its instruction. Read God's word with assurance, because it is true, and treasure Christ's promise that he will never leave you but also treasure Christ's commands to obey his word and to proclaim his gospel. We must treasure the promises and commands equally, having assurance that they are trustworthy. So we read God's word with assurance, and we remember God's blessings for assurance. Friends, we all have short memories, myself included. My wife can tell you of the times where I will get nervous about some situation like all men do and forget about how good God has been to us. But we need to remember God's blessings. We remember how he's taken care of us in past trials. Look back on God's goodness and remember that he is good. Remember how he has called you out of darkness into light. One of my favorite small groups was this week. We're, our small groups are reading through a book on George Mueller and we were talking about Mueller's conversion. And it was just sweet how we all shared stories about how God had drawn us. Some of us had grown up in Christian homes, and some of us had become Christians as adults. But I think I even mentioned to the group that I enjoyed that, and I, I think we need to know more doctrine and more theology, but I enjoyed that more than anything, just remembering God's goodness and how he has called me to himself and how he calls others. And our stories are, are always similar and how people smile when they talk about Christ's goodness to them. We need to remember that. We need to write it down. Write it in a journal. Uh, one of the things that we do at our house, and we didn't think it up, someone uh, told us about it, one of our mentors, but we have a basket of rocks sitting on our entertainment center with a book. And each rock is numbered. And there's a number in the book of a God's blessing. And during our family worship in the evenings, the kids will fight over who gets to pick the rock that night. But they pick a rock, and they read the number, and we read the book, and we say, oh, well, this is the time that 
this happened, and we were, you know, nervous about that, or we didn't have enough money to fix the car, and, and, and somebody graciously fixed it for us or gave us some money, or, oh, do you remember this is when I got saved? Friends, remember God's goodness. Remember God's blessings for assurance. And finally, look to eternity for assurance. Our home is not this world. And thank God, because we just read it's in the power of the devil. But our home is eternity with Christ, if you are a Christian. Our hope is not this life. We are just passing through it. That's why Christians are traditionally called pilgrims. Because we are merely passing through. Eternity is where we'll be judged. Do not fear man, but fear God and look to eternity. We look to a day when evil will be no more, and one day Christ's people will dwell with him for eternity where he is the light. This week I was reading another story, not the same book. This was in a ministry book, and it was about a man who ministered in London during World War II. And he tells a story about a bombing and how an officer was killed. And I'll just pick up straight from the book. He says, quote, After an air attack, I was helping with the cleanup operations. And standing at the edge of this huge crater opened up by an aerial bomb. A woman came up to me. She was the wife of the officer who had been killed. And she showed me her husband's cap and said, this is all that's left of him. Only last Thursday I was with him, attending your lecture. And now I want to thank you for preparing him for his death. And then she quietly shook my hand. This woman had assurance of her beloved husband's fate. Do you have that assurance this morning? Do you have that assurance? Friend, I know because I believe my Bible that there are some sitting here who do not. Friends, it's not just bad theology that damns. Would you turn with me in Galatians? Galatians 5. This is not because of any one person. This is just a text that's been on my heart these past weeks. We know that Christ says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Many will say to me, Did we not do these things in your name? And I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. We know that wide is the gate that leads to hell and narrow the path to life. In this text, Paul writes to the church, starting in verse 19, 519. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and these things, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says this. Paul says that we are called from an old life to a new. John says that no one who is called of God keeps on practicing sin. Peter says that all those who are called of God pursue holiness. John gives us the three tests. 
This permeates the book that we've been studying for weeks and months now. All true Christians love truth about God, love fellow Christians, and pursue holiness. Friend, as you take those tests and you do what Paul says and evaluate your life, do you find that you have that new heart? Do you find that you desire the good of God's people, or is it about you and your selfishness and what you want? Do you find yourself wanting to pursue a lifestyle that is salt and light for God, or is it about you and your lusts? Because I'm not here to give false assurance. I would rather you be mad at me today than to lay my pillow on the head tonight and say I gave someone false assurance. The Bible is clear. Eternity hangs in the balance, and it is coming quicker for us than we probably want. Just this week, a man I served in the Airborne with came home from work, younger than me, came home from work, took off his boots, and died. We don't know why. I'm not trying to turn the knife for conversions, friends. I want to press upon you the importance of eternity. Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, came to earth and lived the life that you and I could not live. You and I were called to live it, but did not. We were born dead in sin. But Christ, born holy, always existent, came in flesh, walked a life that you and I could not live, was nailed to a cross for my sin, was buried after taking all the wrath of God, and after three days rose from the grave as the amen to Christ's sacrifice from the Father, and he ascended in bodily form, still fully God and fully man, and is now at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for those who are his. Friend, is that you today? If not, I encourage you to do what the Bible says and to repent, to turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and turn to Christ. Because it is the only way that you will be saved. You can never be good enough. You can never do enough stuff. But you must turn to Christ. Unlike the flaky soldiers, unlike liberal theology that have no answers, we have assurance in an unchanging God. Those of us who are in Christ know truth, and his promises will be fulfilled. They never fail. Father, we praise your name today for your truth. God, we praise you that you are a good and a holy God. And God, for those hearing my voice who have not trusted in you, God, I pray that you would convict their hearts, that you would wreck their lives so they would turn to you. Give them eyes to see the gospel. Give them no sleep until they turn to you. Father, I pray that we would all examine our lives according to your word to see if we are in the faith. And God, I pray that this local church would serve and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.